Well, dear friends, we're walking through Luke chapter 6 this morning, and we're in verses 27 through 31. This is a fantastic passage and a passage that we need to slow down and think through what we're looking at here. And Christ is teaching us how it is that we are to deal with our enemies, how it is that we as Christians are to be interacting and dealing with our enemies. And we have emphasized the reality that this is an instruction on the law of God. And so this is not merely for the Christians. This is not merely for, well, God just expects more out of you because you are a Christian. This isn't for the the, the few and the proud and and the Marines and the ones that are really living it up spiritually. This is for all people everywhere. The Lord Jesus is applying the law of God. The law of God is applicable to all people everywhere. And so we're going to approach what he's saying here through the lens of the moral law of God and understand this first and foremost within its historical context. We want to understand it biblically within its local context, but we also need to understand it within its context of Scripture and not end up on an island somewhere where we have a really high and mighty Scripture here that we never can apply or utilize in our life. We need to have something that is usable, that is reasonable, that is appropriate. This is a passage of Scripture that many people end up on tangents in going all kinds of directions. There are people that are using this text even now and texts like it to support the idea of communist regimes ruling to influence uh, a growth of socialism within this country and within others. And we must look at these passages within their context historically. We cannot read the text and just say, well, how does this apply to me right now? You are jumping over so many steps hermeneutically. We must read the passage and consider what did it mean to the people at this time? What do we see in Scripture that helps us to understand what this is saying? And we have this sermon also in the book of Matthew, which is worded differently. Matthew is communicating it one way. Luke is communicating another. But we need to even utilize the words that Matthew's using in the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read through this passage. We'll spend one more week on this passage after this, emphasizing the latter portion that comes right after this. But let's look at verses 27 through 31 in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. We have Jesus emphasizing here in verse 27 to love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. And he begins with this phrase that we see many times within this sermon and most especially in the sermon in the book of Matthew, but I say to you. See, the context, as we discussed last week, in which Jesus is speaking is a context in which people believed that they should be kind to their neighbors, that they should be loving 
to their own people. They gather that from Leviticus 19.18. Jesus isn't bringing about something brand new. Jesus is not saying, okay, in the Old Testament they told you this, but let me tell you what I mean now. As though he's contradicting the law of God that was brought forward. Jesus here is applying the law of God. And he's contradicting misapplications that people had in that day, just as there's misapplications of the law of God in our day. Leviticus 19 and verse 18 says this, says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. Very much something that Jesus is dealing with in this portion on the Sermon on the Mount, sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain here in Luke. But we talked about that earlier that I don't believe that this is some other place where the sermon is being told. This is just communicating that they were on a flat area. They could have been raised up and on a flat area. But honestly, that's not really the point of it all. It continues to say, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's what it says in Leviticus 19 and verse 18. This idea of not taking vengeance not bearing a grudge after your own people, but to love your neighbor as yourself. Again, the golden rule that is so popular, is so popular in culture, it's something that, it's the most common verse that people who don't read the Bible and don't attend church are familiar with. That is is love your neighbor as yourself. They call it the golden rule. It's misapplied. It's used for all kinds of of, um, idolatrous desires of pagan culture. But it's familiar, it's well known. Of course, the second most popular Bible verse is the one where Jesus says, don't judge. Well, that's not exactly what he said, but that's how people interpret it. The Bible says, don't judge, what are you doing? How dare you judge? To which I like to say, are you judging me? Are you judging my judgment? Well, yes, because you're judging, so you can only judge other people's judgment. Well, we won't go down that rabbit trail, but that's one that people like to misquote as well. But people would approach the passage this way. They would say, okay, I'm not to hold a grudge against my own people. I'm not to hold a grudge to those who are my people. I'm to love those that are my people. Or, as it's said in other places, to love your neighbor as yourself. So logically, if I'm not to hold a grudge against my own people, it's okay if I hold a grudge against people who aren't my people. If I'm to love those who are my neighbor, it's okay if I don't love those who are not my neighbor. They are fair game, as some would say, as many groups would even say about people, that this is a normal idea. This is completely normal in in paganism, this idea that, okay, there's this group here that we need to be loving towards, that we need to be caring towards, but all others are fair game. We can do whatever is necessary with this other group because ultimately we are at war. So I'm to love my neighbor, I'm to hate my enemy. That's not, by the way, what the scriptures say in other places. The scriptures talk about loving your enemies, but the question there becomes, who's my neighbor, who's my people? Do I have this authority to differentiate between one and another? Am I allowed to even then recategorize people? Because that's how people in this time period would look at it. The Pharisees would say, okay, it is those that hold to the Pharisaical teaching that I'm to be loving toward. The Essenes, 
the group that we don't see within the New Testament, that well, they were there, they were out in the wilderness, more or less. They were away from the rest of the people. This is where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from. They were this group that was kind of far off and it separated themselves from the other people. And they had this idea, okay, well, I would be loving to the Essenes, but I don't need to be loving to these others that are over there. We'll see this as we continue on in this book that Jesus is really going to press this, that even people that had been unbelievably cruel, sinful, and abusive toward the Jewish people, they were to be loving toward those people, which is what it says here. Pray for those who abuse you. There's many people. I want to start with this. I want to emphasize this as a church. There's a great many people that that we pray for on a weekly basis as a church that we have prayed for historically, that we have prayed for our leaders in the government. Why? Because we're commanded to do that. Are we merely to pray for those that we agree with? Well, that might be a short list. We, we might be repeating the same people every single month if we're only going to pray for those that we agree with and then agree with in what way? How many different categories do we need to align with them on in order for us to pray for them? No, we have prayed for and continue to pray for in a systematic way governing officials that are enemies of God, that are enemies of the church of Christ Jesus. We prayed for the mayor of Houston and East Parker many years back. And if you remember what she did, she was so bold at that time that she began to, she tried, she didn't have the power to do this, but she, you know, she looked real powerful standing behind the, the podium, but she had no ability to carry it out. Praise God, she didn't. But she began to demand that pastors produce for her sermons so that they could be looked at, so that she could determine if they were violating other people's civil rights, which, in her opinion, is to speak on what the Bible says we are to behave sexually, to, to speak on what the Seventh Commandment teaches to teach biblically on what the Seventh Commandment teaches in her mind was a violation of other civil rights. She's a lost woman. She's very misguided. Praise be to God, she had not the sword in her hand whereby she could carry that out. The Lord showed us kindness in that. But she was prayed for at that time. We don't even need to go back many years to see that there are a great many in government that were opposed to the church. We had people just a couple years ago that began to command the church on how it is that she was to gather, command the church on what she is to do when she gathers. As though these people, though they were given the sword as ministers of God serving in government, they thereby have the authority to determine what is regulative worship, to declare what is worship to the Lord. Praise God, we were protected in this state. Protected, I would say, only because of an executive order by the governor, and he was kind to us, though many other businesses did not receive that same blessing. Not that we're a business, but that's the category that they were putting us in and protecting us in. 
But there are other states where people were being arrested, where they were being, where they were being fined, where they were being told, you cannot meet inside of this building that you own, that you're paying for. You're meeting in the parking lot in the middle of the summer because that's more healthy. Others are being told, you can't sing. When you gather together, you can't sing. I'm sorry, that's a part of regulative worship. That is something that we do when we gather together. You don't need to go too far away to find places. You go up into Canada where there were fences being put around churches, commanding people not to gather. The police, their form of the National Guard, were standing around keeping people from gathering there. Our brothers down in Venezuela had to meet in secret in houses because the government was oppressing them, refusing to allow them to gather. And you saw such hypocrisy. You saw in Nevada the, uh, the allowance of casinos, casinos operating. Well, they've got bills to pay. The governor's got a salary. There's much to pay for in government. We've got to keep the casinos open. But they told the churches, you have to close if you have more than so many people. I don't remember what the number was, but it was like 20 or 30 people. Casinos had no such restrictions. But I say all this to say that these people, many of them, that are very much against us, that are at enmity with God, that are enemies of the Church of Christ, some of them even now have put through the House of Representatives and are pushing through the Senate a law that would say to espouse and follow after what the Bible defines as biblical marriage is a violation of other civil rights, is so far, is in the same category as one who is being racist, one who is is not even allowing interracial marriage, so-called. Incredible what is happening. And that went back numerous times in the Senate, and they fought to make exceptions for this absurd law that's trying to be rammed through. And they refused, even down to one vote, would not allow there to be an exemption for religious reasons. That's the reality of where we are. That is what is creeping on the doorstep of the church right now. There are enemies that are before us. There are enemies that are desiring to tell you how it is that you should act, to tell you how it is that you should behave. This was happening in the first century. In the first century, Rome was telling Christians how it is they should worship, what it is they should do. We see in the scriptures that Paul says, Paul talks about declaring the Lord Jesus, saying Jesus is Lord. If you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you believe that God raised him from the dead, if you declare Jesus Lord and believe God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I wasn't intending for you to take this and turn it into a trite little prayer that you would follow after and then fill out some paperwork afterwards and write the date in your Bible. He was being in opposition to the authorities of that day. For you were to declare that Caesar was Lord. 
Roman soldiers would come by with an icon of Caesar and there would be incense there before you and you were to grab the incense and throw the incense into the fire and say Caesar is Lord and you could go on and practice the religion that you wanted but you were to declare that Caesar is Lord. Interpreting officials in the first century were desiring to tell the church how it is that she should worship and what it is that she should do and it is in those times that the church was commanded to even pray for these leaders that are over them and we have a long history of doing this you can see entire scrapbooks on that back table over there of governmental leaders if you haven't ever looked at them I'd encourage you to look at them we have letters that they have sent us back over the years various members of um, the Supreme Court presidents senators representatives, local officials, state officials. And we're praying for these people. Many of them at times are our enemies, are not desiring things to go well for us, are not desiring to support us as we are gathering together. But this is what we are commanded to do. We are to be praying for all people. First Timothy 2 and 1 through 4. We see we're going to go to Paul many times as we walk through this sermon and see how it is that he is applying what I believe Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. He was very much influenced by the teaching of Jesus. First Timothy 2 and 1 through 4. He says, first of all then, I urge supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving to be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And here's a verse that is so often just yanked out of its context and not considered here within the local context. And it says, Who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Of course, the error that is there is someone wants to go and take that passage and turn it into something that is contrary to God's sovereign grace in the work that he does within people to save them or to make this some kind of attention that is there within the will of God. But the context that is here is the fact that God desires all people to be saved. What's the all people? It's people in all different positions, people in all different places. That's what we have here, people that are kings, and we see that even in the Bible, people in the house of Caesar that had come to faith in Jesus Christ. We see that in countries even like China where there are great oppressive regimes and there are people that are higher up politically that are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And we are praying for these people that God's will be done. These are not merely imprecatory prayers. When we get up and pray for these governmental leaders, you don't see us stand up here each and every week and declare imprecatory prayers against them. And you don't see us sending them letters, preaching against them and condemning them. And we're praying for them. We're praying for what is best for them. We're praying even that they would come to faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. It's our desire. And that's what I believe is what Christ is talking about here. That we would be a people that is loving to all people everywhere, even those who are our enemies, even those that would desire to do away with us, 
even those that would desire to control how it is that we live, that would desire to command us to do things that God forbids. We must approach a passage like this and many others like it and understand it within its local context, its historical context. We cannot be a biblicist on a passage like this and just say, well, this is what it says, and I'm just going to go with what it says here, even though it's contradicting something else that you see in the scriptures. You must interpret it in a way in which the author intended. You must interpret it in a way that is consistent with what the historical audience would have understood. Sometimes we get into these games. These games, I was talking to someone the other day, and they began to press upon me and and began to say, look, the the Bible never says that a, a Christian must repent. All you have to do is believe in Jesus. Well, that's not really hard to argue with. You have just about the entire epistle of 1 John that talks about that in many other places, and I began to list some of those out, and there was no dealing with that text. It was merely, well, here's some others right here that talk about faith in Jesus. This is not a game of slapjack. This is not some teenager sitting around a table playing a card game saying, I'm going to one-up you on this. Verses in the scriptures must be interpreted in a way that is consistent with all that we know to be true and all that is being declared by the Lord. So there's three aspects that I want us to consider here. And they all have to do with a righteous response to what someone is doing to us or a situation that we might be in. The first is a righteous response to an insult. A righteous response to an insult. How is it that you should respond to one who is insulting you, one who is offending you, one who is attacking you? Secondly, it is the righteous response to a debt. How is it that we should respond When we owe a debt to someone else, when we have taken a loan from someone else, and we owe a debt, how is it that we should respond to that person? Second, and thirdly, rather, it's the righteous response to giving. When you're giving to another, someone that is in need, you're giving alms of some kind, how is it that we should be interacting with that person? Each of these need to be understood within their historical context and within the scriptures as a whole. And that's what I'm going to desire to do here. So the first is the righteous response to an insult. And we see that in verse 29 of Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Now we talked about this, we introduced this last week, and I tried to press upon what this does not mean. This is something that has been taken by some people to mean that you are to take all kinds of abuse upon yourself. You are just to allow people to pummel upon you or to strike upon someone else. That is not at all what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not contradicting the sixth commandment, which is do not murder. We understand in the sixth commandment that we are not to merely not murder other people, but we're also to be protectors of other people. So it is a good and righteous thing to protect your own life. The Lord has given you life. You are not just to allow someone to take your life for no good reason. The same with someone else. You're not just to stand there and just allow someone else to be abused, allow someone else to be attacked, allow someone else to be harmed. You are to protect the life 
of other people. That is a consistent understanding of the sixth commandment. And we've taught on this many times over, that when you understand the moral law of God, when we're looking at the Ten Commandments, and we see this very consistently, so I won't spend a lot of time defending it, but I'll give an example of it here that will apply to another one of our points as well. But this is the reality that when Moses is giving the Ten Commandments, when you have the moral law of God, there is a negative aspect to that law, but that's not the end of it. It is a pharisaical mindset merely just to say, okay, I have fulfilled this law because I haven't actually gone forward and murdered someone with my hands. No, Jesus talks about that. If you hate someone, if you hate someone, if you're angry with someone in an unrighteous way, you're guilty of murder. Why? Because at that time, you are desiring for that person not to exist. When you're looking at that person and you're saying, this person is just empty-headed, that's the term that's used in Matthew, this person is, is, is just stupid. It says that you are worthy of hellfire at that point. That seems extreme. Why is it that I say that this person is lacking in intelligence and that means that I am worthy of hellfire, I am worthy of the judgment of God because I am saying that your brain is good for nothing. I am saying the world would be better if you never existed. Friends, that's where murder begins. There's many points we could walk through here about what happened in World War II prior to it, during it, and afterward. These things happen in the heart. Hatred begins in the heart. Murder begins in the heart. So there's a positive aspect of it that is beginning in your heart, but it's also going to follow in your actions. It's going to follow outwardly in the protection of yourself and other people. So Jesus here, when he's talking about being slapped upon the cheek and turning the other cheek also, we are not to interpret this in a way that contradicts what we have thoroughly taught about the sixth commandment in the scriptures. Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 28. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are the members of one another, Be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your anger, give no opportunity to the devil. Now there he's emphasizing a positive outworking of the sixth commandment, respecting someone else, dealing with your difficulties, not harboring and festering on the anger. He continues, he says, let the thief no longer steal. Okay, we understand that commandment, that is the eighth commandment, you are not to steal. Don't take other people's stuff. And I can say, okay, well, I'm not taking anyone's stuff. No, he goes and gives the positive side of that. It's not enough that you just don't go and take someone else's stuff. You're not standing here just in the middle of the commandment trying to say, okay, I'm not doing anything wrong. No, you must be doing something positively supporting your belief in this commandment that you should not steal. He says this, he says, but rather, so let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor. So that's the very opposite of stealing. Do you know that? You are, you are walking in a way that is consistent with the Eighth Commandment, not to steal. When you go and practice righteous labor and you serve the Lord, when you serve your employer as you are serving the Lord, he says he's doing honest labor with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. It's the very opposite. Instead of taking from someone else, 
removing someone else's possessions, I'm going to provide for myself in such a way that I have the ability to give to other people. This is a, a positive understanding of the eighth commandment. That's our understanding there, that there is, there, is, there is an understanding here of what Jesus is commanding that we need to interpret through what the Bible has already said about the commandments. And so he's not talking about just letting yourself be bludgeoned, letting yourself just be beat up, letting others just pummel over, over other people that you love. Robert Stein makes this point. What is being revo- referred to involves insult more than injury. And most especially that insult because of the Son of Man. J.C. Ryle makes this point. He makes this comment upon this passage. He says, on the, on the one hand, our Lord did not mean to forbid the repression of a crime or declare the office of the magistrate and the policeman unlawful. I mean, seriously, if we're going to take this, I'm just going to take this literally and do what it says, then, then why are you calling the police to enforce a crime that's being committed? He says this, nor did he mean to pronounce all war unlawful or prohibit the punishment of evildoers and disturbers of the peace and order of society. Now he's dealing with what is understood in this culture as an insult. This is a phrase that is communicating the idea of someone insulting you, an offense that has occurred, one that is painful, like a slap on the cheek would be. We're not to understand this merely in the context of someone hitting you, but this is the idea of an insult and how it is that we consistently follow a positive understanding of the sixth commandment by not harboring grudges, not trying to avenge ourselves when we have been insulted and offended. I want to use the example, you know, many times people like to say, well, you know, if things were just as they were before in the United States, things were so much more moral than they are now. Things were so much more peaceful than they are Now, in some ways, yes. In some ways, things were more moral than they are now. But you can go back, not too far back, go back a century, and you will find people that were dueling when they were offended with one another. They were, when when there were two men that were offended one with another, they would challenge the other one to a duel. They would walk outside. They would pace in both directions. There were, there were rules in, that, that were given to regulate this absurd and sinful practice. That someone is offended over what someone else says. So now we need to walk outside and pace our separate ways and point guns at one another and shoot a musket bullet at one another. One of our presidents. It's incredible. It's incredible the amount of people that served in leadership in this country that went through with this practice, and it was normal. It was just accepted. It was a regular practice. Andrew Jackson is said to have had been involved in more than a hundred duels in his life. That is astounding. That is shocking. And that is not rightly understanding what Jesus is saying here. When someone offends you, the solution is not to go and seek retribution for the insult. There are are ways in which things are dealt with lawfully. If someone is abusing someone else, that needs to be dealt with in a lawful way. If someone is harming and injuring someone else, that needs to be stopped. That needs to be ended. We're dealing with the 
issue here of, of, an, of an offense. And think about that. Think about the times when you've been offended in your life and you have, you have harbored that. It has stayed with you. And you've harbored anger in your heart toward someone else where just, just a song that you might hear or just reflecting upon something begins to just overwhelm certain emotions in your heart. Who's the one that's suffering at those points? You're harboring these grudges. You're harboring this anger. It is you, dear friend, that's being affected. It is, it is the other person is moving on with their life. The other person is doing what it is that they are going to do, I suppose, unless you're seeking to avenge whatever, whatever happened. This is a violation of the sixth commandment. J.C. Ryle makes this point. I thought of dueling because I read this quote from J.C. Ryle. So apparently this was common in Ryle's day as well. He says, on the other hand, it is evident that our Lord condemns everything along the lines of revengeful, pugnacious, um, litigious, or quarrelsome spirit. He forbids everything like dueling or fighting between individuals for the settlement of private wrongs. He commends forbearance, patience, long-suffering under injuries and insults. <clears throat> he would have us concede much, submit to much, put up with much rather than cause strife. To return blow for blow and to repay anger for anger is the behavior of a dog or a heathen. It is not that of a Christian. There's many famous um, feuds that have happened over the years. It is the Hatfields and McCoys that is the most famous. It has been officially given a, a, a ceasefire. There's a, 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 a peace that is there, but not a true peace. There are still animosities that is there, and you're dealing with a feud between two families that is going back for generations, that is going back for, for time and time. There, there are people that, that live in certain parts of the world that, that are feuding over things that happened centuries ago. They are being raised to have hatred toward groups of people because of something someone did many, many years ago. There, there's no end to this. You're going to repay all the insults that happen in your life. You're going to be a busy and angry person. You go put upon that. You go try to avenge everything that's happened before you, before you came into existence. There's no peace. The cross brings about peace, though. That is the beauty of what we have in Christianity. Christ has made peace. That's what we saw people gathered together as apostles, Christ's disciples, the, the 12 that were called. And I pointed out the fact that you had one that was a zealot, one that was at war against Rome, one who desired, through acts of terrorism, because they had to use guerrilla warfare tactics. There weren't as many of them. They weren't as powerful as the Roman soldiers. So they would use terroristic guerrilla warfare type tactics to impose fear upon the Roman officials. And they had their good reasons for doing this. But there you have in the apostles serving alongside this zealot, Matthew, the tax collector. The one who was considered, he's a Jew that sold them all out. 
He's the one that was working for the man. He was oppressing the people. He was excising tax from the people to go and enrich Rome so they could oppress Israel even more. And there they are serving one another. Oh, the ways that we could, we, we, we could emphasize and show the, just the unity that Christ brings. That you have within the church people from all different ethnicities. If I were to go and have a grudge on every other country that did something to my country, there would be people in the room right now that I would have to have an issue with. And I can tell you this for sure with the way our country has behaved many times over. There's a great many of you that would have issues with me as well. There's no end to it. It's not going to be reconciled through that manner. We're not the one that has to make all things right. We've been granted the grace of God. We've been granted peace with God. That's our greatest enemy. And I really believe that Paul is applying so many of the truths that Jesus is teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount in the latter part of Romans because he is, he, is, he, is, he is applying so many of the things that Jesus is saying. Romans 12, 18 through 21, Paul applies this teaching that Jesus is communicating here. He says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Be striving to be at peace with other people. That's going to require that you're not trying to do a tit for tat and try to deal with every single insult. Those that are doing that nowadays, those that are trying to deal with every little thing, most especially now that this person said on the internet, so I've got to do this and I've got to send this out and I've got to make a meme, it is distracting from your life. It is harboring anger, it is harboring hatred. Paul says in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And that also doesn't mean that our attitude has to be, Okay, well, God's going to get them. And you're just like really just, Oh, man, the Lord's really going to get it back. No. Your desire is to love the person. Your desire is for what is best for them. You can be praying even for those leaders that are oppressing you. It's what we've desired to do as we've prayed for those that very much are at enmity with God and those that are seeking to oppress the church. And they're, they're making some strides in the more recent days moving in a place where they're in a greater position to carry out these sinful desires of their hearts. Verse 20 continues from Romans chapter 12. It says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. This is from the Old Testament. This isn't a brand new teaching. He says, For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The man who wrote these words is a man who was seeking to squelch the church, was seeking to oppress the church, was seeking to destroy the church. You see the grace of God that was shown to him that the Lord is commanding men to go and to speak to him. And they're like, wait a second. You want me to go to speak to who? This one over here, some clothes of a dead Christian were just laid down before him. 
That's the person that I need to go speak to. Yes, even that person, the grace of God is even for the most unrighteous people. And Paul was one of those people. Paul's teaching on this idea. And this emphasis is where this passage ultimately lands in verse 36. Which is, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. God's been merciful to you. God has been kind to you. Have you received from the Lord everything that you deserve? Praise God, you have not. You would not have lived very long. Likely would not have come into existence. You, Adam, would have been removed. God showed his grace. He said, I will send one who will crush the head of the serpent. I will send a child of the woman. We have this beautiful redemptive story that is flown through the pages of scripture that communicates this idea of what the Lord is doing, what he is going to do, and what he will continue to do for all eternity. And as those that have been called by grace and through faith in Christ Jesus, we likewise are commanded to love as we have been loved. Secondly, we see this idea, a righteous response to a debt. A righteous response to a debt. It says, and from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold the tunic either. Now, this is a passage that is very confusing to people. This one, this verse, and the one that's going to follow this one. And I want to emphasize what we emphasized in the last point and what we emphasized last week. And that is that we are not getting a new teaching on the moral law of God. We have commandments that are given to us in the eighth commandment that we are not to steal. And the positive aspect of that is that as we have seen, we we walked through the Heidelberg last week, and it communicates this idea of not taking from others, but we're also going to make an income for ourselves to provide for others, and there's also going to require a management of that income, a care for your own possessions and the possessions of other people. What does it even say in the Old Testament? If your enemy's donkey is fallen over with a load, you are to help that person. That is consistent with the Eighth Commandment. That is an application of the Eighth Commandment. That's to recognize that these are um, possessions that have been given that we are to steward by the Lord. The Lord's blessed us to have the ability to care for these, and so we should likewise care for other people, even if they're at enmity with us. It's a positive aspect. That's what we saw when we walked through Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. And so when we see this idea of what Jesus is saying here, that that from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. He is not saying that someone that steals from you, you just give them all your stuff. If someone comes into your house to rob you, Just let him have whatever he wants. You have no business defending yourself. You should not protect your family. You should not protect your possessions. Just let them take whatever it is that they want. They've taken one thing. They can just take everything that they want. That is not to understand this passage in its historical context. It's not to understand this passage through the lens of the moral law of God. 
Furthermore, we have many other passages that tell us how it is that we're to interact with people in regard to our possessions. I'm not going to walk through them all now. We've taught on these things previously, but you see many of the Psalms that tell you how it is you are to interact with your possessions, how it is that you're to interact with with what the Lord gives to you. And none of them say, just give them all to a thief and let them take whatever they want. That's not what's communicated. Furthermore, you even have Paul saying in 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would, we would give this command, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat. That would apply to this verse and the one that follows after it. It's not this idea that anyone just asks for something, as we're going to see in the next passage. Just whatever someone asks for, give it to them. If someone's stealing something from you, just let them have it. How do we justify having alarms on this building and restraining people from taking the possessions from this building if we're just to let people take whatever it is they begin to take and let them take all of it? No, that's, that's, that's absurd. And sometimes people will take a passage like this and end up violating the Eighth Commandment in the process. End up making themselves feel better by someone just asks for something and they're not thinking about what the person is going to use it for how it is it's going to be used, whether or not this person is going to take it to abuse drugs. And I just feel better by throwing money this direction and not thinking about how it is it's affecting something else. Now, I want to emphasize this. I don't see any reason why we don't understand this verse in a way that is distinct from how it is communicated in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. So it's worded slightly differently, but I believe it's the same idea that's being put forward. And I believe it is on the topic of paying back debts. You may not have heard someone say that before. That's the direction I'm taking this. I think that is consistent with what we see in the scriptures as a whole. I think it's consistent with what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. We see this in Matthew 5 and verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him take your cloak as well. Now, that seems like a very strange thing, that you would be in court and someone is taking your cloak outwardly and they're also taking your tunic and you're going to walk out half naked from the courtroom. This is dealing with the topic. This is what I'm teaching. It's dealing with the topic of paying back your debts. Why do I say this? Exodus 22, beginning in verse 26. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down for that is his only covering and it is his cloak for his body and what else shall he sleep and if he cries to me I will hear for I am compassionate and Jesus here is I believe communicating the idea that you need to repay your debts to not use provisions that exist in the law not to pay back what you have taken for someone else the law was there for your protection it does not exist for you to be lazy, for you to refuse to pay back what is owed to other people. You took out a debt. You took a pledge to someone else. You borrowed from someone else. You should repay that which you borrowed from someone else. I think that's the historical way to understand this. The very next verse in Matthew has another historical concept that doesn't readily apply to us in the exact same way in which Jesus stated it. That's Matthew 5.41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, we can apply that in our context, but to understand what it's talking about here, you need to understand that at this time period, a Roman soldier could walk up to anyone and demand that they carry his supplies a mile. 
That was the extent of what they could do. That's what they were allowed to do. They could come to you, and they could, thankfully we have a constitution in this country, and that's not how soldiers are supported or moved around. But this is, this is really normal historically, that soldiers would be supported in whatever area in which they are existing in or wherever they're fighting. So they would pillage or take from whoever was there. They, you were expected to house them within your home during these times. Even if they were the enemies, they would come in, they would stay there. That's what they were allowed to do. And Jesus is saying this, they force you to go to one mile, go with them two miles. Go beyond what's merely expected of you. But they couldn't force you to go beyond a mile, but be willing in your service to them and your love to them to go beyond the mere legal requirement of the service, to be generous to others with our time toward others as representatives to these governing officials. And I think this is something that very much applies to where we are now. And there's other passages we could use to emphasize this, but this is overwhelmingly an issue right now that people think they can just take loans out from people. They can take loans out from the government, and they are justified in not paying them back. We have a situation going on right now where people are being encouraged, overwhelmingly encouraged, to go to college and to take out hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans with no plan of paying them back. And then it's just expected that the rest of the country needs to foot this bill. And that's the absurdity that is there, that you have people sometimes coming from middle class, upper middle class, going to college, taking out six figures in loans, going into occupations sometimes where they have no means of ever repaying it, no thoughts going there. Meanwhile, the money's there, the money's flowing in, the colleges are raising these rates, even during this time it's being encouraged And then you have some of the poorest people in the culture that are going to end up repaying that debt. Though they may not directly repay it, it's going to be repaid through inflation of their currency, which is one of the worst ways to have to repay a debt. This is immoral. One who took out a loan should repay that loan. You should be mindful. You should be mindful of loans that you're taking out. You should be mindful of debts that you're taking out. You're not just to say, this isn't a big deal. This doesn't matter. You're not to go and try to wiggle around the law and say, okay, I can go through this route and I can go through that route. No, he's trying to say, no, go beyond it. Go beyond the expectation merely of the law. You took out this debt, repay your debt. That's how it is that you should be living. We see Paul apply this idea in Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. This isn't saying that you can never borrow anything from anyone ever. That's not the idea. I can't go borrow a tool from you, or you can't go take out a loan on your house. But it's saying, Owe no one anything. You need to be repaying what you take out from other people. You are not being a good witness of your provision if you're going to go and take out debts and not repay them, most especially intentionally. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Again, look where Paul's going with this. I really believe Paul is applying the Sermon on the Mount in these latter portions of the book of Romans. They're all summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. How do I love my neighbor? That's defined by God. 
How do I know what it is to love my neighbor? It's communicated through the moral law of God. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. So in that application, I'm not going to take out a loan and then expect some of the poor people in the society to pay for my debt that I took out. No, you should repay your debt. Thirdly, a righteous response to giving. How is it that I interact with others that I'm giving to, that I'm supporting in some way? He says this, give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. So just as we haven't interpreted the other passages in a strict, wooden, literal, rigid way, we're not going to do the same thing here either. Leon Morris makes this point. He's one of my, my, my favorite scholars, especially when you're looking at things historical. He says this, if Christians took this command absolutely literally, there would soon be a class of saintly paupers owning nothing and another prosperous idolaters and thieves It is not this that Jesus is seeking, but readiness among his followers to give and to give. The Christian should never refrain from giving out of a love for others in his possessions. We need to understand the concept of almsgiving in this historical context, because alms was the... It was a very common thing. That's how the poor were supported, the poor that had no means to care for themselves. You see that like in the book of Ruth where they would go around and they're gleaning from around the field. They're not able to go and pick, but that which fell, they were able to get. They were able to make food for themselves so that they wouldn't starve. You had others that weren't even able to do that. You see such people in the Gospels. Some of these people Jesus healed, they were sitting there all of their life. They were beggars. They were being supported by other people. They had friends that were carrying them where they were. They were gathering money, and then their friends were carrying them off somewhere else where they could use the money to support themselves. And they were able to survive because of the gifts of other people. These are true needs. This is true poverty. He's not saying here, everyone that ever asks for anything, you have to give it to them. Apply that as a parent. Why don't you just do that? Everything your child ever asks for, just give it to them. Well, perhaps your child might want you to take this passage very literally. But we're dealing here with true poverty. And you had a system at this time that was not a godly way of looking at it. It was not a godly way of supporting and blessing someone else. But it was more of a quid pro quo. I've done this for you, so you need to do something for me. And so though someone was blessing someone, they were giving alms to that person, there was an expectation that there would be a payment back in some way. Or there was a a debt that was unspecified that was owed from that person to the person who had given to them. And this was something that was very stressful upon some of these people, that there would be so many people that they were owed to at this time. And Jesus is saying, that is not how it should be with you towards others. If you're giving to someone, if you're blessing someone in this way, then you are to do that in a way that is loving as God has been loving to you. God has been kind to you. He has not given to you so that you're going to repay him in some way. David Garland makes this point. He says, Jesus' command about giving would have struck the listeners as bizarre. He makes no mention of the worthiness of the recipient and effectively erases the social distinctions between the giver and the receiver. To Jesus, the true benefactor is a patron who gives without expecting any return from the one who receives. The benefactor will be repaid by a third party 
who is an even greater benefactor as the source of all gifts. That is the Lord. And we conclude here in verse 31 with what is known as the golden rule. As you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. As a reminder of what Jesus is saying here, it is an emphasis of what he is communicating, that God has shown mercy to us, God has shown kindness to us, God has blessed us, as we have sung even during this service, as we sung of the, the deep love of Jesus that is all around us, that has been shown to us, God showed his kindness to us. God has given us grace. God has granted us forgiveness of sins. Not because we are deserving of it. Not because we are going to repay him in some way. God has not repaid the insults that we have given to him upon us. He has shown us grace. He hasn't given to us that he would be repaid. No. We have that beautiful declaration by Paul Again in Romans, in Romans 8, 1 through 4, of what Christ has done for us, the blessing of what Christ has given to us, the gift of what he has given to us. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That is what the Lord has given to you, dear Christian. That that is what you are are in need of. I I pray that that each of you would recognize that. That you do not have a a, a man-made religiosity that the Sermon on the Mount is so offensive to. This idea that I'm going to do these actions and the Lord is going to bless me because of it. The Lord is going to cover my sins because of my actions. The Lord is going to find me worthy and worthwhile. The love of Christ displays the very opposite of that. The love of Christ of what has been shown to us the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus has shown to us the ways in which we were unworthy. We were enemies of God. Oh, it helps to remember where we were. Oh, it helps to remember what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. That in Jesus Christ, he has taken upon himself the wrath of God that we are deserving because of our original guilt in Adam and because of our actual sins that we commit. He has taken that upon himself for all who believe upon him, and he has fulfilled the law in every way. What he's speaking of here, what he's teaching here, he always did. He never didn't do it. Jesus fulfilled the law of God. Why? Because we didn't have the ability. We not only sinned, we also didn't do what was right. And Jesus fulfilled the law in every way to purchase for his people the righteous requirement that was necessary that they may have life. And those that are in Christ, if you're in Christ, you are clothed in Christ's righteousness. You are blessed in Christ. And what we have in Christ is greater than what the entirety of the world could ever grant to us. That is the greatness and the blessing of what Jesus has given to us. Praise be to God for the blessing that we have 
in Christ Jesus that has been shown to us by grace and through faith in God loving his enemies that which each of us were in our natural